Jeeves, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered. His command had been ignored. So he sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. Soon another message was received. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am Seaman 3rd Class Jones. Immediately the captain sent a third message, knowing the fear that it would invoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. Then the reply came, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <clears throat> Booyah. <laughs> the battleship needed to learn the gracious act of submission. As we began the look at submission in the scriptures last week, uh, it's going to be a few more weeks looking at what a right definition, right application of submission is. And tonight we're going to look at the motivation behind submission. And in the weeks to come, we'll look at the justification of submission, the dignity of submission, and the extent of submission. So a lot about submission, but it's very important. Uh, as we're in Genesis chapter 1, you know, one day in probably 15 years or so, Lord willing, we're going to give great and deep attention to these first chapters of Genesis, um, but it might be a little while at the rate we've been going through Romans. But um, we know that these first uh, few chapters of Genesis are really very important. Now, we also know that all scripture is beneficial, all of it's important, um, if at the least in our Christian hearts, because we know that the Bible's been inspired by the Holy Spirit and it's profitable. And yet, not all of the Bible is equally significant. There's reasons that we memorize John 3.16 or Romans chapter 5 verse 8 or Romans chapter 8 verse 1 rather than like Leviticus chapter 15 and the law of omissions. You know, um, we just haven't really been memorizing that and applying it to our heart. You might not even know what that chapter's about. That's good. Don't read it ever. No, just kidding. Just kidding, Lord. Uh, and so we want to look at uh, a little review of Genesis chapter 1 and why it's so important. Verse 26 and 27, uh, we looked at it probably three, four weeks ago, where God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, then in chapter 5, you see something similar. Now, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. And what does Adam mean? It means man, right? So this is the book of the genealogy of the first man. In the day that God created man... Adam, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them, called them mankind in the day that they were created. So uh, a few weeks ago, we learned that God has created us in his image, in his likeness. Uh, if you weren't here for these studies, it's, it's just a must to go back and to listen to them 
um, download them to your MB3 player, whatever. Um, but man, really don't want you to miss out on, on any of the series. And by grace, we've been given the tools of, of uh, recording devices and such. But as we've looked uh, in depth, not as much tonight, but in the past, uh, that God created us in his image as male and female, this implies a few different things. It implies that there's equality within personhood between man and woman. There's equality of dignity. There's mutual respect in that we've been created in the image of God, male and female. There's harmony. Uh, there's complementarity, as it's been said. Uh, and there's unified destiny. All of these things. What does that mean? Well, equality of personhood uh, states in, in this doctrine of the Imago Dei, that, God, that man's been created in the image of God, that man is not less of a person than woman, uh, and woman is not less of a person than man. They are equal, and their differences, then there are differences, it doesn't change that basic truth. There's also equality of dignity. First uh, Peter 2.17 tells us to honor all men, uh, meaning all humans. So there's honor uh, paid to people simply because they are made in the image of God. Even the worst criminals in prison have a level of honor to be given to them, not because they're great inherently in and of themselves, uh, but because they've been made in the image of God. So there's this um, equality of dignity just to people. Um, there's mutual respect when we've been created in the image of God. Mutual respect. So men and women should be equally zealous to respect and honor each other. It should never just flow in one direction. We've been created in the image of God, and so we should look at this awe and, and kind of awe with one another um, realizing um, that uh, this image of God has been tempered, uh, not totally destroyed by sin, but distorted. There's harmony amongst us because we've been made in the image of God. That speaks of peaceful cooperation. There's full unity uh, in, in that we've both, we've all, husband, wife, been created in the image of God, or as uh, one man called it, complementarity, uh, this complementarity speaks of this beautiful harmony. And it reminded me of when I used to be quite the uh, saxophone player back in my middle school days <laughs> and uh, in high school days. <laughs> um, and when we'd get together with our band class, you know, we'd have some 50 kids in a room all playing various instruments, and yet we could all strike a note that just sounded beautiful. And that's one thing I always loved about being a band kid, you know, was we could just make some beautiful music. Even though even different notes were being played, they would strike a chord. Even though there were differences within the band, those differences were actually beautiful. You know, there was difference between a trumpet and a clarinet, between a tuba and a piccolo. And in our context tonight, differences between male and female. But these differences can be respected and valued. Being made in the image of God shows us that there's this unified destiny together, both men and women in Christ. 1 Peter 3, 7 says that we are fellow heirs of the grace of life. And so there's a lot wrapped up 
in uh, the doctrine of the Imago Dei that we've studied in depth in the past weeks. And, and to know that in his creation, in his design, God has something wonderful in mind for us, being created in his image, and he's not done with that. And through the gospel, he brings us back to that, what his original intent was. Um, he redeems us from the ravages of sin to what his original vision was. And so um, you, you have those wonderful truths of the image of God the Imago Dei, um, but then you come to Genesis chapter 3, which is an incredibly important chapter, and without Genesis chapter 3, the rest of the Bible wouldn't make sense. Um, this is really one of the most important chapters in the Bible because it tells us uh, what went wrong, what went wrong with what was once wonderfully perfect, spotless, and blissful Eden. As we look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see God's enemy, God's nemesis, disguised in a costume of a serpent. He was very sly, and he stealthily comes, and he draws this woman into a fresh consideration of her life. A faulty, wrong consideration of her life, the very life that had been given to her by God, by her creator. And in verse 1 of Genesis 3, it says, The serpent was more cunning than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Kind of paraphrase, you know, there's an astonished disbelief. It's fake. It's all acting on the part of the serpent. But he just says, did he actually say, he's being dramatic, did he actually say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Perhaps to dram, uh, dram, dram, dramatize it a little bit more, he might have said, Queen Eve, I am so befuddled. Didn't God say that everything was good? Aren't you and King Adam supposed to be ruling over it all? And his question, it takes her back. It baffles her and it causes her to reevaluate things, not on the, the terms of truth, but on her own terms. In verses 2 and 3, it says, The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so there's kind of this slight defensiveness on Eve's part here. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but that's not what God said. He actually said something in a much more broad sense, as you go back to Genesis 2, where the command was given and the, and the ban was given. In Genesis 2, 16, second part of that verse it says, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. That is much more broad and free. It has a much wider scope than what Eve had kind of been trying to defend. You know, she just kind of says, oh, yeah, you know, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. Except this one of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not 
eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now what's crazy about verse 2 and 3 is what Eve says and what she doesn't say. Now there's two like specific trees in the garden. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know, Eve didn't even mention anything about this awesome, glorious tree of life. You know, she could have said, devil, you know what? It's not about that tree. Get your focus off that, that banned tree, that, you know, prohibited tree. Get your eyes on what God's given us. You know, look at what he's given us, the tree of life among others. This, it's a fantastic tree, this tree of life. But instead, she's got all of her focus and all of her energy wrapped up on this one tree that's been forbidden, the knowledge of good and evil, and that's all she can think about. And sometimes that happens to us too. We get wrapped up on this one sin, and that sin uh, can become an idol to us. Even our hating of that sin can become an idol to us, that it's all we think about, it's all that consumes our heart and our thought and our mind, and it's just a wrong place to be. We're to meditate, as Philippians says, on the things that are pure and noble and right and of good report. We're to think on those things. And so she also here reveals an exaggeration of God's ban on that tree. Uh, it's, it's, it's not right the way she puts it, where she says, you know, and God also said, neither shall you touch it. She's adding stuff. God never said that. That's not what God said. He said, you shall not eat of it. And so as she's kind of talking back to the devil, you can almost sense in her mind, she's feeling like her boundary, she's getting her style cramped. You know, she's saying stuff that God never said to her. And it's almost like she feels like she's being strapped down to a chair by God as the enemy is trying to manipulate her and get her to think about things that were never put forth by God. She feels like her freedom is being encroached upon. And those restraints are beginning to dig down deep and break her skin, she feels. Notice how she tones down God's threat of punishment here. God says, you will surely die if you eat of this fruit. Eat it, die. Pretty blunt and plain, right? What does she say? She says, lest you die. Essentially what she's saying is, in case you die. You shall not eat of this tree or touch it, she puts it that way, in case you die. It might happen. Death might come from that. That's not what God said. And so it's staggering what she does say, what she doesn't say. And Satan, who is so sly and he never has mercy, he's beginning to sense in her the lessening view of the consequences Oh, maybe we would die. And he's also sensing that she's starting to feel like her freedoms and her rights are being encroached upon by God. And so he moves in for the kill and has an all-out assault against Eve. And he doesn't hold back any, any punches now. First, he's kind of like, I'm your friend. I'm a nice little snake, you know. And then all of a sudden, bam, sucker punches her in the face in verse 4. And the serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. You catch that before it was kind of like, hey, what would happen if you did, you know? And now he's like, mm, no, you won't die. 
Full-blown deception right now. He knew what God had originally said. He didn't need Eve's help or Eve's explanation. And then he thinks he's going to let her in on a little secret here in verse 5. You know what, Eve? God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like God, knowing good and evil. You know what, Eve? There's a little motive that God has other than his love for you. God hasn't been straight up with you. He wants to hold you back. He wants to keep pleasure from you. Don't you know your potential? God wants to hinder your potential. God knows that this fruit will give you knowledge and you'll rise to his level of wisdom and insight and control over things. God's not really your friend, Eve. He's actually your nemesis. He's holding on to you and keeping you down because he's your rival. And you've got to outwit him right now. Now's your chance. Go ahead, outwit God. I know this garden seems pleasant, but it's actually a cage. There's much more than this garden out there, Eve. He begins to play on her mind. In fact, if you don't eat of the fruit, everything that you could be and would be, it's over. Eat. Eat of the fruit. Satan directs Eve from God to self. From what's called theocentric mentality, God-centered mentality, to anthropic-centric mentality, man-centered. This is really the first mention in scripture of humanism. Get your eyes off of God. Get your eyes on yourself. Realize your full potential as a human being. It's anti-faith, anti-God, pro-man, pro-self, self-realization. So verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, man, she has been deceived. That it was pleasant to the eyes and the trees desirable to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. It doesn't look deadly. It looks attractive. It looks luring. How would God create something so good and just dangle it in front of our face and not expect us to bite on it? It's so beautiful. Or, you know, the quote from the little girl on Despicable Me, it's so fluffy. (laughs) That apple is so fluffy. Or whatever it was. Cran raspberry, probably. Something like that. Irresistible. With the insight that this fruit brings, Eve is singing, I will be liberated from the dependence that this creator, you know, he's making me think I have to be dependent upon him. I'm going to be stuck in this prison forever. I'd better act now. I'd better eat now. Or he's going to find out that I've even been thinking these thoughts. And he's going to take this, this opportunity away from me. So she eats quickly. And she gave it to her husband with her. And he ate. As Piper says, Adam and Eve have both sinned against God. They've distrusted his goodness and turned away from him to depend on their own wisdom for how to be happy. So they rejected his word and they ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and God calls them to account for it. This is what Romans 1 speaks of when we've, we've coined the term de-godding God. 
thinking we know it better than God. We depend on our own wisdom rather than God's wisdom on how to be happy. Notice she ate, and then she gave to her husband, and he ate. And remember, all that we've learned recently, what the scriptures say concerning equality, but also distinction of role and function within the marriage. While she, as Eve, was created to be equal with him, totally equal, fully equal, she was also, at the same time, brought to him to help him, brought for him, even named by him. And we see here in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve steps out of her respect for her God-appointed role and leads him into sin. Paul tells us that Eve was deceived, that Adam willingly sinned. But as bad as that is, that there was deception over Eve, there's a greater fault there with Adam. The language seems to tell us that Adam was sitting by while all of this was going on and just passively letting his wife be tempted and go into sin without intervening, without loving his wife by stepping in and, you know, getting sin away, leading in obedience to God. And the point of all this is, you might make note of it, that the fall of all mankind took place in the context of a rebellious, defiant role reversal. Role reversal. That's how it all began. And God brings this issue forward when he brings out the curse. He shows us how serious this was. Jump down to verse 16 in Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Well, now, doesn't this sound pretty good, actually? Your desire shall be for your husband. I want my wife's desire to be for me. I'm pretty desirable anyways, you know. No, I'm just kidding. Not at all, actually. We had this discussion yesterday, didn't we? Okay. Um, it was a good discussion. <clears throat> Just cried a little bit and got over it. Um, <laughs> the language here isn't actually declaring something that we should want men. And you see it in another two chapters, or another one chapter, Genesis chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, in the story of Cain and Abel. And there in uh, Genesis 4, 6, the Lord says to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Almost identical language is used in chapter 3, verse 16, and chapter 4, verse 7. And here God is warning Cain about his resentment and his anger against Abel. God tells him that sin is about to get the upper hand in his life. That sin is actually lying at the door about to ambush him like some kind of violent, rabid, vicious animal waiting to pounce. 
And it's the same thing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, in this role issue between the wife and the husband. The word desire here in both verses speaks of a domination, a control, a mastery. What God told Cain was that sin desires to master you and to control you and to oppress you and own you. It wants to jump on you and control you. Sin wants to overpower Cain and Rory, and you can insert your name as well. That's sin's desire. It wants to defeat us and subdue us and make us slaves of sin. And in the same way that sin wanted to make Cain its slave, sin desired Eve to have her way over her husband, to rule over him, to master him, to control him, to oppress him, to own him. In her original temptation there, with the fruit sitting in front of her and the serpent speaking to her, she usurped his place as head. And so God hands her over to what's called the misery and mastery over her husband. Just as in Romans chapter 1 verse 24 and 26 where we see the extreme depravity of man in his sinful state. That when he wants sin, God gives him his sin. As it says there in two different places in Romans 1, God gave them up to uncleanness that they could have the lust that they wanted, and God gave them over to vile passions. Not a good thing. God's saying, you want sin? You'll get sin. The punishment fits the crime. You want it, you got it, and all that goes along with it, and it's not good. There's a reason I've created it my way. It was for safety's sake. It was for glory's sake. It was for peace's sake. It was for harmony's sake. It was for love's sake. But you want something different? You're going to get it. And I'm going to give you up to it. The parallel between the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Adam and Eve is so amazingly close. Because in Genesis 3.16, God says in the curse, Your desire, Eve, will be for your husband. You will want to rule over him, own him, master him. And he shall rule over you. Now, men, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this last little section of the verse is like God coming along to your aid and patting you on the back and saying, I'm there for you, little buddy. Don't worry. Because I said, although she wants to rule over you, you're going to rule over her. And I remember reading that and being like, oh good, well, the curse was going to be really bad, but don't worry, I'm going to actually rule over her. Guys, this is the curse, okay? This is not good. This is curse section, okay? And it's not a good thing that he shall rule over her because the rule speaks of an ungodly, oppressive domination that is exploitive and domineering leadership at its heart. It's everything that's wrong with our redneck men in America and everywhere else across the world. It's where the whole little joke about my wife being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, don't even think of coming out. I mean, that is 
the ruling section of the curse. It's the consequence of the fall, and it's at the heart of what the curse is. And so verse 16 means that when sin has the upper hand in a woman's life, she will desire to overpower and subdue and to exploit her husband. But when sin has the upper hand in man, he's going to respond in a manner that is also equally as rebellious. He wants to subdue her and he wants to rule over her. And I remember when, you know, uh, my sisters and when my wife were going to college, I didn't go, <laughs> but I remember when they all went, um, I remember them having to take these uh, women's study classes. And in these women's studies classes, you know, they would have to study feminism and chauvinism. And you know what? Partly, it's, it's rightly so. I mean, there's been very destructive things within chauvinism against women. Very ungodly things. Uh, and yet there's a problem with this because the worldview of it all is that, uh, is that um, this fight between feminism and chauvinism, that it began, you know, in the 60s or something. You know, when Betty, what's her name, Freedom came about, Freedom, or when the Feminist Manifest came about, or when the... Uh, uh, vocational organization of women. You know, it was all in a response to the curse, actually. It didn't begin in the 60s. It began back in the, the ones. The three days. I don't know how long it was there. But it began with the curse. And so what we see here in chapter 3, verse 16 is what's marked so much of human history with just a, a horrible black ash. That maleness as God created it has been corrupted by sin, and femaleness as God has created it has been corrupted by sin. And in our sin, we try to have this self-reliance and self-exaltation, and in that we exploit one another. Male in his corruptness exploits women by blowing up his effort to control her for his own private desires. Women also blow up their effort to subdue and to control and to exploit men for their own, her own private desires. We see that mainly in the different weaknesses that we can exploit in one another. Men have much more brute force. And we try to be domineering and we try to be intimidating and we puff up our chest and lower our voices and get kind of gravelly and put her in her place and bring me my dinner and those kinds of things. And women do something that's just as destructive but looks so much different. Though they don't have the brute strength, they know how to subdue men. They run circles around them with words and where their words fail... They often resort to his weakness in lust. I mean, you can step back and reflect on our advertising system in America and that women can get men to buy anything as long as they show some skin. Can completely manipulate men to fork out cash. But men as equally destructive 
With their brute force, they abuse, they rape, they threaten, they snap the finger. Tim Savage says that wives who embrace the call to subordination will resist the inclination to dominate their husbands. In Genesis 3, we saw that a man's besetting temptation is to compensate for the ineptitude of her husband by seeking mastery over him. Even good husbands can, by inaction or laziness or insecurity or just poor judgment, drive their wives to frustration, prompting them to take over for their husbands rather than lining up behind them. The feminine arsenal is filled with a battery of weapons capable of mounting a formidable challenge to the top position. Biting critiques, aggressive action, manipulative moods, sexual blackmail, stubborn silence, nagging criticism. But a godly wife will forsake them all. Rather than push her own agenda, she will seek to honor her husband. When you look at verse 17 of Genesis, the curse continues To Adam, God said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, dot, dot, dot. First of all, we see that Adam heeded the voice of his wife. Maybe your translation, along with the ESV, says that he listened to the voice of his wife. Now, he's not getting in trouble here just because he had an an auditory system that worked, you know, or his hearing aid was on that day, but he's getting in trouble because he followed her. He followed her and ate, the scripture says. And so Adam is called to account for his action. He's hold accountable, number one, because he defied the simple ban of prohibition that was laid out that he was not to eat. But secondly, he's held accountable because he followed his wife's leadership into sin. It's very telling here that Adam and Eve fell into sin together. But Paul shows us in Romans chapter 5 that Paul gets, or excuse me, that Adam has all of the blame for the fall laid at his feet. As Romans 5.12 says, just as through one man sin entered the world, or sinnered as I combine words, sinnered the world, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The chapter is awesome because it goes on to say, so as through one man's obedience, eternal life came to the whole world. But Romans 5 shows us that at the foot of the man, the blame was laid. Why not both Adam and Eve? Because in God's design, Adam bears the brunt of the responsibility to lead the marriage in God-glorifying obedience. And so Genesis 3 is the reason every marriage struggles. And the curse is replayed in every home across the world, in every country, in every land, in every state. As uh, Artaxerdia said, Satan's assault against Eve was not a reflection of her unique moral vulnerability and weakness as a woman, though some have said this in an ugly way that would make us want to be a feminist, but an attempt to deny God's design to willing submission to love. 
Satan said to her, you decide, Eve. You lead the way. Don't you want to exercise control? By giving her kind of the army pep talk of that she could be all that she could be or was meant to be. It was all contrary to God's original design. And because Adam and Eve didn't walk in their God-ordained roles, we live with gender wars. We live with wife swap on TBS or whatever it's on. As the commentator Hamilton put it, far from being a reign of co-equals over the remainder over God's creation, the relationship now is a fierce dispute with each party trying to rule over each other. What one man called this beautiful picture, a choreographed dance of submission to love, it's now become some kind of MMA cage fight. Mixed martial arts, wives punching husbands in the face, husbands jabbing wives in the throat just to get the upper hand. But the good news is all of this fall can be reversed by the gospel. All of it can be reversed. It will totally, finally, when Jesus comes back, totally be reversed, be put back in order, and until then, it can be approximated. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the good news of what Jesus has done. And look at 2 Corinthians 11.3, as Paul says, I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And I have that same fear that we want to get back to Eden but we want to do it our own way. We want to do it counter gospel. We want to do it by man's works and man's pragmatism rather than on the design and the, and the revelation and the empowerment that comes through the gospel, through the good news of what Jesus has already done and the power that he gives us through his Holy Spirit that he sent to dwell in every believer so that we can live out what he's mandated for us. And so we come to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> Each family member is addressed in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. Wives, husbands, children, slaves, masters. Hope you don't mind me calling slaves and masters part of a family. But employees, employers, sometimes employees say that. Be part of our family here. And we see that there's a command that is given, a command to obey, given to each member of the family. But not only is the command given, the motivation on why to obey is given. The power of the gospel in respect to the families is found here in every command. It's followed by our motivation on why and how to do it. Now, our burden last week, our main point last week, was we wanted to give a right definition to submission. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, you've got to you know, get online. For the sake of time, we can't get into all of it tonight. You've got to get online. You've got to listen to last week's session. But I'll give you some short definitions to maybe help. A right definition of submission. Submission on the part of the Christian wife is defined as the voluntary yielding to the love of her husband. That's what biblical Christian spiritual submission is. Not 
called the husband's not called to be the head. He is the head. He's not called to lead, but he's called to love. And as he loves, the wife's calling, the wife's mandate is to voluntary yield to that love. As you look at verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, we have this emphasis on submission and the, the context of who submits to who. It's a reciprocal submission. In verse 21, you see we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. As Stephen Beck wrote, I was driving down a country road. I came to a very narrow bridge. In front of the bridge, a sign was posted, Yield. So seeing no oncoming cars, I continued to cross the bridge to my destination. On my way back, I came to the same one-lane narrow bridge, now from the other direction. To my surprise, I saw another yield sign posted. Curious, I thought, I'm sure there was one sign posted on the other side. And when I reached the other side of the bridge, I looked back. Sure enough, yield signs had been placed on both ends of the bridge. Drivers from both directions were requested to give the right of way. It was a reasonable and gracious way of presenting a head-on collision. A reasonable and gracious call to us in the church is to yield to one another in love. To submit to one another in love. And at the heart of a wife submitting, before you get to verse 22 in Ephesians chapter 5, you get to verse 21. And as a starting point for submission... What defines marriage as specifically Christian is that you've got two people bound and determined to outserve each other and on behalf of each other, nobody wins and they both win. There's reciprocating submission. There's the equality in being made in the Imago Dei and the image of God. Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ and out of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we don't begin by talking about how a wife needs to submit. We talk about how a wife needs to be empowered with the Holy Spirit. I'm sensing the time crunch and so I'm just filtering a little bit here. And so tonight as we look at more submission, more on submission. We want to know how is this submission motivated? What prompts us to action to submit? Wives, what prompts you to, to live out Ephesians 5.22? What propels you in doing this? We all need motivation. The story is told of a man who's told his pastor, I'm so depressed I can't get any dates. He was 300 pounds. He said, I've tried everything to lose weight. The pastor said, I think I can help. Be dressed and ready to go tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. The next morning, this gets PG-13, a beautiful woman in a skin-tight exercise suit knocked on the man's door and said, if you catch me, you can have me. She said that as she took off down the street. So he huffed and he puffed and he ran after her. This routine went on day after day for the next five months. The man lost 115 pounds and felt confident that he would catch the woman the next day. That morning, he whipped open his front door and found a 300-pound woman in a jogging suit waiting for him. She said, the minister said to tell you that if I can catch you, I can have you. <clears throat> 
All sorts of strange and sinful things can motivate us to action. But what motivates us, you women, to action in respecting and submitting to your husband? Submission on the part of a Christian's wife is incited and motivated by her ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus. That's where the power comes from. That's where the incitement, that's where the propelling power comes from. It comes from your allegiance to Jesus. It's been known as the million dollar question. Why should a wife be submissive to her husband? You want to phone a friend? I'm going to give you three options. Is it because this is the role that society has given to her and we can't go against our culture? Is it because women by nature are born to be inherently submissive and by doing so need to adhere to their design? Is it because their husbands are stronger and more intelligent and less prone to deception? Or could the answer be found in the text of Ephesians chapter 5? Nope, it's number one. We're done for the night. Um, No, it is number four. Sorry, guys. That means that we have a little more Bible study to do. In Ephesians chapter 5, what does it say? Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, that word Lord there, it's not a reference to the husband being the Lord over his wife. Or for her husband to be regarded in the same exact way that she regards the Lord. No, that would be called idolatry. Now, there is this ultimate allegiance to the Lord over the husband. We're going to get that in the weeks to come, the extent of submission. But what it means here in Ephesians 5.22 is that her submission to her husband is an exact expression of her submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Her discipleship as a Christian expresses itself as she follows Jesus. As we just scan real quickly, verse 22 and a couple other following verses, uh, it's what Luther refers to as Paul's house table. Uh, In verse 22, you've got wives that the command is given, submit to your own husbands, but then you have the motivating passage, the motivating phrase, what? As to the Lord. Then in verse 25, husbands have their mandate. Husbands love your wives doesn't just end there. There's motivation. There's incitement as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Then jump to chapter six, verse one. Children, here's your role. Obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Six, four, chapter six, verse four. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. There's motivation in that. Chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity and heart as to Christ, not with eye servant as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. And then jump down to verse 9 of chapter 6. And you masters do the same things to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven. There's evangelical gospel motivation behind every single command that is given to us. 
The motivation and the power are given to us. This is a gospel-driven text. And the moment you take the gospel out of this mutual submission stuff that's going on, you immediately become a legalist. Okay? You immediately become a moralist. And you've deviated from the whole theme of Scripture. And it's going on everywhere. And it's so quickly the fault that we almost went into when we were doing this series. It's so easy to do because our bent towards sin is self-reliance, self-reliability. Lord, if you could just give me a little push, then I'll do it on my own. It's not biblical. He does it for us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Submission is called for not because of who your husband is, but because of who Jesus Christ is, because of who the true and better groom is. And all of this elevates the worth of our relationships to a much higher platform than we ever could have imagined. Savage, sorry guys, you just become one of my new favorite authors and been reading his books, so I'm going to give you what I learned. But um, this is what he says. I think it's really good. When applied to marriage... Subordination of this kind ennobles the wife. She becomes a creative and energetic partner. She interacts thoughtfully and actively with her husband. She becomes so much more, radically more, than just a differential partner in times of dissent. She's also more than a competitor vying for equal status. Confident of her equality to her husband, she passionately uses that equality as a platform for revolutionary action. The sort of action that make other revolutionaries look insipid by comparison. She throws herself into fulfilling the needs of her husband, viewing his interests as more important than her own, like Jesus did in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. It's revolutionary indeed. Savage goes on, What person with even a modicum of self-respect, with even the slightest measure of egalitarian propriety, would dare to subordinate her interests to those of another? Well, we have met just such a person. Jesus Christ. He viewed his position of equality to God as a reason to submit himself to the appalling death of crucifixion. By doing so, he put our interests ahead of his own. He regarded our needs as more important than his own. He lined up under us, not in the sense that he became inferior to us, but he put his needs and esteemed our needs as more important than his own. In the sense that he gave priority to our needs. Does this kind of self-sacrifice offend our enlightened minds? Of course not. It's the gospel. The good news. It's the ground of our salvation. Though uh, Through the subordination of the Son of God, we are exalted. The apostle does not refer to nature, to general standards of decency, to the law or to the fall, as though any one of these contained the grandeur motive of of exhortation. Only the Lord Jesus Christ is the source, standard, motivation of a woman's subordination. So what motivates women? What can motivate you to walk in? We're going to get to the husbands. Boy, howdy. We're going to get to the husbands. You gals only have like 40 words given in exhortation to you. We have 115. 
This series may stretch into the jolly season of Christmas. Who knows? Did I hear a sigh out there? Oh, gosh. So for Christian wives, there can be no higher propelling force or motivation for you to submit to your husband than for you and your devotion to submit to him who gave us the best example ever of lining up under somebody else's needs and desires. Lining up under Jesus, who in his example of submission has done everything to save you. If you guys, gals, don't understand this good news of the gospel and the motivation behind it, that Jesus has done it, and your love and passionate relationship with him is going to lead you to do it as well, it's going to fall short in your life. It's going to fall short of being Christian. And though a lot of other references that you might get have, might have Bible verses stamped on them, they will deviate from the whole theme of Scripture. It's kind of like understanding the full under, uh, theme of American history. I love American history. Love it. It's just fun. It's like a little hobby that I've got to read and talk about it and all that good stuff. You guys know. Kevin knows. We talked about it a long time in the car last night. The Donner Party. Who knew that for 45 minutes you could have... Anyways. Um, <clears throat> You're telling me that's not interesting. Okay, but in the whole scope of American history, if you don't know these key dates, like 1492 and 1776 and 1865 and how big they were and what happened on those dates for our country, everything else just falls away. It doesn't have the meaning. It doesn't have the importance. And we can't fully appreciate or understand our history without getting those dates. The same thing is in the scripture. The big, just pieces of the scripture, such as the incarnation of God himself, God becoming flesh to live a perfect life and to die a sinless death for the world that never could live a perfect life, then we've missed the marks. We come to the scripture and just get a collection of moral principles to kind of, you know, help us on our journey. But we miss the main point, the main structure, the main grid of all that the scriptures have for us. Artaxerxes said the Bible is not an inspired book of virtues. And don't use it in that way. If you talk about submission in a way that would be suitable to a Mormon, a Muslim, an Orthodox Jew then you're not talking about Christian submission. You've missed the meaning of the Bible. Although perhaps you've been able to make your point using verses and texts from the Bible, this book from cover to cover is about the gospel. It's an evangelical book. So, submission on the part of a Christian wife is motivated by her ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ it's an expression of her devotion to him in response to all that he has done for her. Couple quick New Testament passage. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. Paul does it again, that rascal, as is fitting to the Lord. Not only because it's right, not only because it's fitting into God's ultimate design, 
but because of who is the Lord of your life. Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. The older women, likewise, teach the younger that they'd be reverent in behavior, not slander, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they'd admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And it's not because these women are older. Older doesn't mean anything if you're not mature in the truth. The implication here is these women are mature and aged and that they would go out and they would teach their husbands to be submissive. Why? That the word of God wouldn't be reviled to protect the gospel from slander and accusations on the part of non-believers. If you put all the motivation that we've looked at in the scriptures and tonight in the weeks past, Wives are to voluntarily submit to the love of their husbands for four reasons. Number one, to express their love and allegiance to Jesus Christ. Number two, because it's fitting in God's design for marriage. Number three, to adorn the gospel. And number four, as a means to influence their unsaved husbands for the sake of the gospel. Sorry, in fact, I skipped First Peter chapter 3 where it says, wives, submit to your husbands, even if they don't obey the word, they without a word would be won by the conduct of their wives. And so that's where number four comes through, that as you're submissive to your husband, gals, even if they are unsaved, you can influence them towards the gospel. And so knowing all that, we can safely assume that the opposite would be true. If you refuse to submit voluntarily to your husband, the opposite is true. Number one, you commit acts of defiance against your Savior. You, number two, you act in a manner that is different than God's design for you as a wife. Number three, you subject the gospel to reproach and accusations. You put a black mark on the gospel. And number four, if you have an unsaved husband, you provide a means to convince him that there's really nothing special about the Christian faith, about Christian truth. And so gals, you've got to reckon this. You've got to teach the younger gals that aren't here tonight to reckon uh, with this. Because there's some wives, maybe even in this room, that are more intelligent than their husbands, they're more talented than their husbands, more educated than their husbands. As I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> there are women in here that are more educated than their husbands. Guess who that might be? There are women who are more biblically informed than their husbands. There are gals who possess more instinctive leadership skill than their husbands. Are they all still to submit? And why should they? Because they have this enormous, enormous, powerful motivation from Jesus and from what he's done and the power that he provides. The motivation that comes from the realization that this is an expression of your obedience to your Savior. The fact of the matter is, it's one of the most beautiful and touching scenes to observe a woman who
who no doubt has greater gifts and and response, excuse me, greater gifts where she responds humbly to the love of her husband who's clearly inferior to her in nearly every way. And in her response submissively, she's not condescending. She's not bitter. She's not manipulative. She's Christian. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And sometimes it's hard to find. Shakespeare wrote The Taming of the Shrew, and it's supposed to be a comedy. And there's a scene towards the end of the play where Katharina speaks to the ladies at Signor Baptista's house. And she says this, Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee, and for thy maintenance commits his body to painful labor both by sea and land, to watch the night in storms, the day in cold, whilst thou lightst warm at home, secure and safe, and craves no other tribute at thy hands, but love, fair looks, and true obedience. Too little payment for so great a debt. Such duty as the subject owes the prince. Even such a woman owes her husband. And when she's forward, peevish, sullen, sour, and not obedient to his honest will, What is she but a foul contending rebel and graceless traitor to her loving Lord? I am ashamed that women are so simple to offer war where they should kneel for peace or to seek for rule, supremacy, and sway when they are bound to serve, love, and obey. And we could say in response to this, Shakespeare, we could say, amen, biblically, but we would also say, why? Why? What motivation? Because of culture or because of tradition? Or because of the as to the Lord passages in Ephesians? Ephesians 5 is so much better than the divine comedy. (laughs) So much better. Listen to um, Susanna Spurgeon's testimony of her relationship with Chuck, Charles Spurgeon says, Susanna Spurgeon gave highest praise to her husband, Charles. She said, you are the most tender, gracious, and indulgent of husbands. Here, in the words of Charles, is a portrait of the exalted submission of Susanna. She delights in her husband, in his person, his character, his affection to her. He is not only the chief and foremost of mankind, but in her eyes, he is all in all. Her heart's love belongs to him and to him only. She finds sweetest content and solace in his company, his fellowship, his fondness. At any time, she would gladly lay aside her own pleasure to find it doubled in gratifying him. She is glad to sink her individuality in his She asks not how her behavior may please a stranger or how another's judgment may approve her conduct. Let her beloved be content, and she is glad, Spurgeon said about his wife. As Alistair Begg says, the woman with no loss of dignity takes the position of submission to the headship of her husband, and as she submits to follow, so so he submits to lead her, and there is no problem with authority and submission in that kind of context. And gals that are here, we're wrapping up, and to prove it, Tammy can come on up. Put my money where my mouth is. Gals. So 
Some of you have been raised in the church. Some of you have been Christians for years. And you're totally committed to these principles in your mind, in your intellect. And yet living it out and being obedient to the word of God. If you're honest, it's just not happening. It's a disaster uh, zone that, that you're not living out these principles in your marriage as Alistair Begg put, I think it's just pretty sobering. Wives who cart and moan, complain, cross-question, denigrate, undermine, cut, harbor resentment in their hearts against their husbands and make them look foolish when they are out for meals and correct them even though they're wrong, including but not limited to times that it doesn't really matter that much. What matters is that there's a unity and that you can correct him when you're back at home. You argue that it was February and not March, that he had red trousers on and not blue. He's a little bit Scottish. You disrespect your husband in front of your kids. And the next time he goes to discipline them, they will backtalk and fight you. The kids saw you doing it and they learned from you. The same way they need to see your husband loving you, they need to see you respecting your husband. And for many, perhaps in this room even tonight, God's brought you here so that you can know the reason you're not submitting to your husband or to the other authorities that God's placed in your life, not because they're better than you or worth more than you, but because of role and function so that there might be unity and community. The reason that you refuse and have difficulty submitting is because you've never submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior. And so you need to ask yourself tonight, are you a Christian? Are you a genuine Christian? I wouldn't ask you to become a Christian so that you could fix your fragmented home. But perhaps the Lord has shown you that your home is fragmented so that you can see your need to become a Christian. That you can see your fallen state. You can see back in Genesis, it's just as if you were there as a wife. It's just as if you were there as a husband. And so before tonight, we would ask God to overturn the effects of sin in our home. We ask God to reverse the effects of sin in our own hearts that are causing so much of the destruction. Let's pray. Lord, we come tonight to the cross where in that same curse passage, Lord, you spoke of the son of Eve who would come and crush Satan's head, and Satan's head would bruise his heel. We think of Jesus who came in fulfillment of that prophecy and destroyed the serpent so that he could reverse the effects and the consequences of the fall. And Lord God, we pray for the power and the motivation of the Holy Spirit, the motivation of the gospel here tonight to correct us, to correct wives, who've been walking in defiance of your rules that you've laid out in Ephesians and Colossians and 1 Peter. And in walking in defiance, they've simply been showing that they defy you, God. They don't submit to you as their Lord and as their Savior. And Lord, in the most gentle way possible, would you just come alongside these gals and just gently convict them Show them their sin. Grant them repentance right now that they could turn from their sin. And wash them and forgive them and place your Holy Spirit in them that they might obey. 
that as they respond to your loving, kind, godly, gentle leadership, Lord, that they would respond to their husband's leadership even when he fails to perfectly represent Jesus. And if that's you here right now, I just I ask of you to just humble yourself before God. If you humble yourself, he will lift you up. But if you're stubborn against him, he will resist you. Just confess. Maybe you're not even a wife here tonight. Maybe you're a single gal. And you could just say, Lord, just it might not be my husband, but man, it's any authority in my life. It's my doctor. I just rebel against him. It's, my, it's the state patrolman. It's the judge in the courthouse that, that you've raised up as an authority in my life. It's my pastor. Any authority in the church, I just rebel against that. I'm not submissive to one another as to the Lord. And it's because I'm not submissive to you, Lord. Husbands, you can pray the same thing out tonight and repent of just a defiant heart, a defiant attitude. Gals tonight, you can repent tonight of just a a harsh, manipulative, bitter attitude of your husband disrespecting him in public, amongst peers, amongst friends, amongst your kids, arguing with him. And you can just come tonight to the obedience of Christ. We're motivated because he came and was obedient to the point of death, even the death, the humiliating, excruciating death of the cross. Lord God, we thank you tonight for the the gospel motivation that we have in your word. Forgive us for where we've taken worldly philosophy and slapped some random Bible verse on it and called it Christian when it doesn't match up with the rest of the context of scripture. Let's stand and let's sing. And in our singing, let's repent, let's confess. Maybe there's even uh, uh, you know, your spouse next to you and you just need to, as we sing, you need to ask for forgiveness. Maybe husbands, you need to ask forgiveness for your wife for just being a chauvinist and for just walking in the depravity of the fall trying to rule over your wife in an ungodly, unloving way. But let's confess sin, let's repent, and let's glorify God. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.